And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, October 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, as the world heats up, data shows the U.S. technical edge keeps eroding. Plus, meet the new president of one of the largest federal employee unions. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, facial recognition is coming to the government's online sign-on service. The General Services Administration plans to add a facial matching feature to login.gov, along with some other identity verification options. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And tell us about facial recognition at login.gov. Sounds like something kind of overdue here. Login.gov is used by many federal agencies for accessing different programs and services online. They offer, you know, an account authentication option. So you can have a single account to go across multiple agencies. And they do have some identity proofing features, but this will actually raise the stakes or raise the level of identity proofing for Login.gov. GSA released these plans last week. They plan to add this face matching feature to the service uh, starting within the next year. They also plan to offer folks the option to either prove their identity in person at a local post office or through a live video chat with a trained identity verification professional if they don't want to use facial recognition. So that's coming out at some point within the next year here to login.gov. And do we know whether they're using a commercial product adopting to that? Because, you know, other entities in the government have facial recognition that they've adapted from some of the commercial algorithms, NEC and so on. Or is that unknown yet at this point? Well, GSA confirmed to me that they're going to partner with a vendor that uses, quote unquote, best in class selfie matching algorithms. And they're also evaluating other alternatives. So they don't have any firm, firm plans here, but they're going to use some sort of company's product here to integrate that into login.gov. And this is a big deal for login.gov, which I think has been seen in the government as maybe falling a little bit behind in the state of the art. Yeah, you know, even though more and more agencies are adopting login.gov, uh, you know, th- there's still some issues that have cropped up with the service in recent years. First, earlier this year, uh, you know, login.gov and GSA came under heavy criticism because between 2018 and 2022, the program actually misrepresented their security standards to customer agencies, saying that they met a certain level of identity proofing standard that they actually didn't. Part of the problem is is these standards require perhaps something like a biometric, like face matching in many cases. And Login.gov was not using that for those years that they said they met these standards. So there was a huge review of the program. And now, of course, they're moving to, to facial recognition. And then, of course, face matching, facial recognition still is somewhat controversial. The IRS, if folks remember last year, pulled back on plans to essentially require uh, most online customers to use a facial recognition service provided by a third party. They still offer that option, but the IRS actually shifted to login.gov last year instead. So now it's kind of come full circle. Yeah, people do get uneasy for some reason with that technology. I guess they figure the every match in will be saved, but I think most of the systems dispose of the image once the verification is made. That's true of people leaving and coming into the country through TSA and Customs and Border Protection. And so how will login.gov's face matching system actually work? 
It's going to essentially compare a selfie that you take in the moment to your photo ID. And so it's not going to be going back to a database of photos that are scraped from the web or anything like that. It's, it's just going to be comparing the selfie that you take in the moment to your photo ID. That's referred to as one-to-one facial face matching, facial recognition, which is typically a little less controversial than the one-to-many type of matching that we often hear about. GSA says the data will never be used for any purpose unrelated to verifying your identity by login.gov. And they also plan to monitor the effectiveness of its face matching tool across different demographic groups because, you know, some prior research and studies have shown that some facial recognition algorithms are less accurate for non-white faces. So they're going to monitor how well this actually works. That's interesting, though, that comparing a selfie of yourself to some other reference picture that you might have submitted already, say on a license, because the perspective is so different. When you take a selfie, that lens is close to your schnoz, and so your face has a different geometry than when the camera was like three, four feet away. And yet, I guess nowadays, yeah. modern algorithms can correct for that. Yeah, I guess so. I think you're, I think we've seen a lot of different companies come out with these these products that use a selfie compared to you know a photo of your driver's license right especially in the covid era when so much was shifted to online and then there was so much fraud so clearly there are a lot of companies working on these different algorithms to really pinpoint that verification so it's not there yet but they plan for it in the next 12 months gsa At some point within the next year, GSA says, they will start down this path. And we said at the top, too, that there are other alternatives for identity verification coming to login.gov other than facial. What are some of those? We know that GSA is going to offer those in that in-person option as well as, well as that uh, option to do a live video chat with a, a essentially a customer service representative to verify your identity. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, which actually sets the identity guidelines that these agencies have to follow is also looking at some updates to those guidelines. And they're specifically have specifically sought some feedback on whether there's an alternative to facial recognition to meet that higher level of identity proofing standard. NIST actually says that it sees a need for some sort of remote identity proofing option that does not require face recognition. Anista representative actually spoke at a conference last week, Ryan Galuzzo, digital identity program lead for NIST. One of the things he mentioned is mobile driver's licenses. Maybe that's an option for identity proofing. We're seeing more and more states roll those out. So NIST is looking at some alternatives to face recognition, even as organizations like GSA are bringing them into login.gov. And I guess, did they, at this conference, did the plain old-fashioned six-digit text number sent to you to your mobile device, which you can log on to with your face for the most part now. Did that come up? So login.gov does do the authentication using SMS text messaging codes. In some cases, they also use things like a YubiKey and things like that. That's on the account authentication side of the house. The identity proofing side of the house is a little harder because you have to have some sort of ID that proves who you are. And then you have to confirm that that's really your ID and that's really you. So that becomes a little bit more complicated. I think at the advent of the pandemic, when people could not do the gold standard, which was the only one that a lot of agencies used for employees, was in person. So that you had one for sure, that person is really there sitting in front of me. But then to hire a new employee, you couldn't do that during the COVID. So maybe now they've come up with ways for remote ID verification as opposed to 
strictly login for people that are trusted already. The key word here is options. I mean, clearly a lot of people want the ability to sit in their house and just sign up for services. That expectation has kind of been created, especially since COVID. But then there are folks who don't necessarily want to use technology or facial recognition, providing them the option to go to a post office to prove their identity instead or something like that seems to be the key. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, meet the new president of a large federal employee union. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. She spent 20 years as a revenue officer at the IRS. Then she went into union work, serving for 14 years as president of a local in Wisconsin. Now she's the new national president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Doreen Greenwald joins me now in studio. Ms. Greenwald, good to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. So IRS, you are central to what got NTEU started in the first place, which was basically IRS people. What motivated you to kind of switch from the revenue officer career to union work? Well, I worked for the IRS for overall for 35 years, 20 of which was as a revenue officer. And throughout all of the jobs I had at the IRS, NTEU in the workplace was evident to me that it helped things work smoothly. It helped address employees' issues early on so they didn't get out of whack. It allowed employees to have a voice in their workplace and make sure that they could have a say in how things changed. Asking people who do the work is the best way to make changes in a workplace and make sure they're working as efficiently as possible. And that's what introduced me to the National Treasury Employees Union. Interesting. So did you find that the IRS would ask the people doing the job about change and the best way to do things because they had to, because of the NTEU in place? Or do you feel like that's what they really thought was a good practice also. No, I would say without NTU in place, those kind of questions wouldn't be asked of the frontline workforce. Having a contract and having procedures in place that allow employees that voice and making them have a voice at the table in key decisions that impact their work lives makes a huge difference. And that doesn't happen without a union in the workplace. And the IRS has always been decentralized. They used to have these large, I guess they still do to some extent, processing centers where all that paper got handled. And so there must have been some variation in general employee treatment and approaches from place to place. Maybe the union presence helped keep things a little bit more uniform, perhaps. I would agree with that. Obviously, IRS is a huge operation. It does have submission processing centers. It has service centers. And I worked in a field office. And so each one of those is a different work environment, and each place NTU has a, a voice in those workplaces. For example, I worked in a field office where revenue officers and revenue agents, people who actually went out in the field, did audits and did collections, had issues that were involved about work-life balance, about making sure you were safe in the workplace. And so those are things where NTU would step up. And there's different issues in a submission processing site all of which NTU has people on the ground working with frontline employees to address those issues. And I want to get a little bit more of your own biography. 35 years is a long time for the IRS. That's almost a quarter of the time it's even existed in some sense. <laughs> and you know, what got you into that work in the first place and what were the highlights? Well, I think for most people that work for the federal government, it's something you're not sure about when you enter. I was excited. I took a civil service test. At the time, I thought, oh, I'll check out the government and see until I find something different. 
And then when I became a civil servant and took an oath to the Constitution and the mission of the service, I was proud of the work I did, and I really loved helping America's taxpayers. You know, the IRS gets a bad rap of, you know, having to collect taxes. Nobody likes to pay taxes. But I will tell you, the people who work for the IRS are proud of what they do, and I loved it. And so what started out to be a one- or two-year career turned into 35 years in a blink of an eye. I met great people along the way and really was able to serve and give back to the community, which gave me great pride. And sometimes the IRS is not popular with certain elements of the public. Was that ever really an important issue? It's always an important issue. As I said, you know, being a revenue officer, my job was to collect taxes and returns. A big part of that is education. People are really good at what they do, but they don't always understand the tax laws, and they can be quite complex. People also need to realize those tax laws are passed by Congress, not by the IRS. So we're doing a job that Congress sets us out to do. So in that realm, yes, you run into people who aren't happy with some of the work that you have to do. But my job was to educate them and to help them to fulfill their requirements. And so for the most part, I would say people were very cooperative. But we always had tools to deal with those who chose to not be cooperative. Sure. We're speaking with Doreen Greenwald. She's national president now of the National Treasury Employees Union. And what are your general goals for NTEU? My general goals are to obviously grow our union. We have a very strong union in 35 federal agencies. We have a new generation coming on board in the federal government, and I want people to be proud of being federal servants once again and proud of their union. And so I'm going to look to expand and educate people about the role of a union in the federal government and how important it is to federal employees. And what have you found with some of the young people maybe coming in? How receptive do they arrive at, say, the IRS or one of the other 35 agencies? Do they tend to be receptive to this idea, or is it something that they feel is passe? Actually, I think they're very receptive. What we're finding is a new generation that hasn't been exposed to unions in the past. And so this gives them an opportunity. Also, they're the voice of the workforce on the front lines where they're not getting the support they need from management. And so NTU is there for them to help them, guide them and lift them up and so that they're successful in their career. And, you know, IRS management, management in general, gets dinged by line employees. That's kind of as old as human history. But in your experience, what makes a good manager from your standpoint and, you know, what makes someone good for the union that they have a counterpart that is sympathetic, maybe not sympathetic, but empathetic and understands why the union is there? That's one of the myths of unions is it's anti-management. And I will tell you, we're not anti-management, we're anti-bad manager. And so what I would say is you want a good manager who communicates well with their employees, that's there to address their needs, help them. If they need additional training, identify that, provide it for them. That's what you want in a manager, is to be there and be supportive of you. Unfortunately, not all managers have good skills in communicating. They may be good at the work they did, but managing is a different set of skills. And so we try to work with managers to make sure they have the skills they need and to make sure they have the training they need to be better managers to help employees. And the challenge, I guess, at some level, is that employee membership in the union that happens to represent an agency, there's no such thing as a closed shop in the federal government. So you have to always be convincing people to stay in and pay their dues, even though they know they're benefiting from what the union may do if they're not a member. How do you meet that challenge? It is a challenge because 
as you said, you know, employees have the right to join a union or not join a union in the federal government, but they all benefit from the work that the union does. And so that's part of my role and part of all of our leaders' roles across the country is educating people about all the things that union dues pay for, such as our contracts and having people on the Hill to fight for them and do all of the things necessary to provide a better workplace for them. That doesn't come for free. And so we want to have as many people involved and their voices as part of our actions going forward. And so that's an ongoing discussion that we have with the workforce. And what kinds of signals are you getting from the current regime at IRS? We have a very good relationship with the uh, current regime at IRS. I don't know that I'd call them a regime, but the commissioner, Danny Werfel, has been a very positive influence. He understands that the changes needed at the IRS to deliver for taxpayers starts with the employees of the IRS. And so he has a huge undertaking now that they receive funding from the Inflation Reduction Act to really help them rebuild the IRS. Because for over a decade, the IRS has been gutted by budget cuts. And so while the complexity of taxes has grown and the base in which IRS employees must service taxpayers has grown, the workforce has been diminished. And so it's on his task to bring on new employees, train them so that they can provide the services that Americans deserve. And in advocating before Congress, which the federal employee unions do and are not shy about that, have you ever wanted to say to whatever the committee is or several committees, clean up that darn tax code? That's the fundamental problem that seems to plague almost everyone that deals with taxes in the United States is the length and complexity and subtlety of something that ought to be really simple. Well, from a union standpoint, we don't get involved in the policy of government. So if Congress doesn't like the tax code or feels it's too complex for taxpayers, it's their job to clean it up. Absolutely. Doreen Greenwald is the national president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, yes, people, the House leadership failure also affects acquisition. But first, as the world heats up, data shows the U.S. technical edge keeps eroding. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Using artificial intelligence, analysts at Govini have built a digital twin of the U.S. industrial base. And it's a disturbing picture. Govini's analysis shows how far behind the United States military is in bringing new technology to bear. The technical edge is dulling, you might say. For details on its latest national security scorecard, we turn to Govini CEO Tara Murphy-Darty. Tara, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And this latest edition, I noticed in the foreword, which you and Bob Work, of course, the chairman, have mentioned this digital twin of the defense industrial base. Tell us what that is exactly. So if we just start with the concept of a digital twin, I'm sure many of your readers are familiar with this in various capacities, but I would just describe it as a virtual representation of a physical object of some kind. And what we've done in creating a digital twin of the U.S. defense industrial base is map all of the companies, the capabilities, and the capital that flows among them that underpin national security. That's actually a global picture, not just an American one, but it's the best representation 
from a data-driven perspective of all of those facets of the industrial base, which, as you mentioned in your opening, are absolutely critical to U.S. military competition with China. And the military, it's safe to say, knows that it needs to get new technology over the valley of death and so on into operational capability for warfighters. And golly, the events of the last few weeks seem to really drive this point home, the importance of it. But what does the digital twin cry out to us? What is it saying? It's saying that acquisition process that you just described, which is how the Department of Defense gets military capabilities to the warfighter eventually, is too slow, it's overly complex, and its burdensome nature is preventing the United States from getting the best capabilities out into the field. I actually think you put it perfectly. The technological edge of the United States is dulling. And what the scorecard highlights out of the digital twin of the industrial base are a range of problem areas that are essentially creating that dulling effect. One would be a gap between strategy and spending. Another would be the fact that our supply chains are replete with Chinese entities, including prohibited ones. And then certainly there's an aspect as well of reduced or unavailable capacity within the industrial base from a production and manufacturing perspective, something that absolutely ties into how we support our allies abroad. And the gap in technologies is not just things like artificial intelligence, which is software, but we have hardware gaps, and those derive from a technological base, like where we need to be, say, in hypersonics, for example, where you throw a thing really, really fast. But also in that capacity area, I think of the 155-millimeter howitzer shell, which are consumed by sometimes tens of thousands a week in ground combat operations, which are going on in two really bad places right now in the world. So is it safe to say this gap spans basic hardware things, as well as some of these cutting-edge so-called technologies like AI. It definitely does. And your examples of hypersonics and artillery and munitions are excellent ones. I would add to that list space capabilities. And space is a really interesting area highlighted in this year's scorecard because there's such a worrisome trend in this regard that the data really highlights. And one would think, given all of our focus on space technologies at the national level and the national security level, that this is something that is a major area of investment. Yet, what we saw over the past five years, so if you look at DOD-wide spending from 2018 through 2022, investment in space technologies actually decreased. And simultaneously, we see China demonstrating launching space capabilities that a decade ago only the United States had. So you have to assume the two are correlated, and it's a great example of where data can really highlight what's actually happening, not just what we perceive to be happening because of a certain area of focus or topic of discussion. And why is this spending off in these areas? Is it because DOD is unaware and hasn't made the case to Congress? Or have they made the case to Congress and Congress doesn't believe them? Because there's always a lot of interplay that goes down the, let's say, the intellectual supply chain between appropriations and requirements. 
Absolutely. And boy, isn't this the year to see that play out. I think there are a lot of factors at play here. One is the just push and pull of changing priorities. And some of that is driven by events that are happening around the world. One would never have projected a few years ago that we would be spending what we are spending today on munitions and trying to restart production lines of capabilities that the United States hasn't used in decades. But here we are. Then there are domestic priorities. So just to stay within the space example for consistency, despite the fact that we've seen overall spending in space areas of technology go down. One area that has seen an increase is in space systems that are related to climate. And that's an understandable area of investment. And those kinds of trade-offs are made within different administrations at different times. And then there's what happens with Congress, which I don't think I could even begin to weigh in on, to be honest. All right. We're speaking with Tara Murphy-Doherty. She is the CEO of Govini, and we're talking about the National Security Scorecard for this year. So what's the big wake-up call? What has to happen, do you think? A variety of things have to happen, and I'd put a few at the top of the list. The first and foremost is that in addition to all of the policy debate, the statutory debates with Congress, the reforms recommended by a seemingly endless number of commissions. One of the major aspects of acquisition that needs to be fixed is just process improvement. And the defense acquisition process is an area that has been really underserved by commercial technology. Gavini's flagship product, the ARC, aims to bring premium data, high fidelity commercial data, in the form of this digital twin of the industrial base, in addition to modern software in order to help execute the process. That alone will have tremendous impact in modernizing our force. And then the second thing I would highlight is once those systems are fielded, or frankly, along the way of getting those systems fielded, we have to pay attention to the presence of prohibited suppliers in those supply chains and in those platforms and weapon systems. Whether you're talking microelectronics, you're talking AI, or you're talking hardware elements, that is still an area that despite being a major priority of DOD for the past several years, there remains a lot of work to be done. Right. So there is a major acquisition reform commission. They did an interim report a couple of months back, and they said they're going to try to speed up processes and improve these processes. But often these commissions come up with long recommendations and a few of them get adopted, but otherwise they become shelfware. So it seems like it's up to the people that are doing the planning within DOD to move on these things in every possible way they can that does not require statutory change. Exactly, Tom. And I think that while it's perfectly reasonable that we'll have experts in this field and officials in the executive branch and members of Congress continue to grapple with what changes need to be made to the process, the reality is the process might be slow, but it does work. Eventually, we not only do get capabilities into the hands of the warfighter, But the United States has the strongest, most able military in the entire world. 
Now, we've talked about that technological edge dulling and changes that need to happen to make sure that we maintain that position as the world's strongest military. But I would argue we haven't lost that position yet. So if we have a process that works in setting aside the changes that need to be made to it, why don't we just focus on ensuring that it is operationally relevant from a timing perspective and faster and more modern today. And I think that's how the private sector thinks about process improvement. I would call upon the Department of Defense to think similarly. And just a final question. This report is about new technologies from bio to space to artificial intelligence, all those things we've been talking about. But there's also sustainability, maintenance, logistics. You look at the F-22 program, the most capable fighter perhaps ever built, but there's dwindling numbers of them and they're getting rusty and the Air Force can't afford to maintain them at all top operating conditions. So half of them are in mothballs at a given time or being cannibalized. So the long tail that I would lump under logistics, does the report look at that? And isn't that one of the big problems is sustainability here? Absolutely. And you touched on a number of important aspects that are probably not addressed as often. The sustainment of legacy systems. Think about, in addition to the F-22, which is a great example, think about the upcoming Columbia-class submarine. has a 90-year expected lifespan. The vast majority of spending, investment, capabilities that are going to go into that platform are actually going to happen in the sustainment phase of that system. And so sustainment as well as affordability are essential and addressed in the scorecard primarily through the perspective of what suppliers does the United States have today? What capacity do we have in the industrial base and manufacturing ecosystem in order to support these systems? That's an area too where we're seeing the numbers begin to decline in terms of both capacity and availability. We can address that nationally through initiatives such as additive manufacturing, but the reality is we need companies to continue to support defense systems and these legacy programs for decades to come. Tara Murphy-Doherty is CEO of Govini. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, yes, people, the House leadership failure also affects acquisition. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The longer the House of Representatives remains in stasis, the closer the next budget deadline comes without any action to resolve it. There's lots at stake, including how the federal acquisition function will operate. Not that acquisition was getting any easier with so many new rules coming. For a look at the situation, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me now. And it seems like, again, the damsel is getting closer to the buzzsaw because here we are again, close to a shutdown. Tom, here we are again, and with so many variables, it's really difficult to predict what's going to happen precisely. But I think that both government contractors and their federal customers should absolutely prepare for, unfortunately, some not-so-good case scenarios. Uh, Right now, the government's funded through midnight, November 17th, which sounds like a long way away, but 
the House of Representatives is poised to take the next several days to, again, try to get itself a Speaker of the House. And until they find a way forward from that impasse, Tom, there's not going to be an opportunity to work on a continuing resolution or 2024 appropriations bills in any meaningful way. And the closer you get to that deadline, the fewer good options are left. The opportunity to have a government shutdown could be back on the table by mid-November. Let's hope not, uh, because given the timing, if it's mid-November, then it could very well be into December uh, with a couple weeks worth of shutdown. But on the appropriations side, look, if we don't have House leadership on the Republican side, we can't really have meaningful discussions past a certain point on appropriations either. And what that means is that that December best case scenario that everybody kind of hopes by which appropriations will be done, that's looking less and less likely too, which could easily push us into late winter, maybe early spring of 2024 before we find a FY24 appropriation. That's not good for national security. It's not good for a host of civilian agency things like VA benefits and getting social security checks and tax returns managed. So there's a lot to chew on here, Tom. Yes, and the longer the continuing resolution goes, set aside a shutdown, the shorter the actual fiscal year becomes in which to start new initiatives. And so you could get two effects. One, agencies can't get their programs off the ground that they were planning for that fiscal year as quickly. And also they tend to get a little bit conservative in spending the longer it drags on because of the uncertainty of future funding. So it's kind of a spiral downward in many ways, even if there's no shutdown, but you have longer and longer CRs followed by a shorter and shorter, by definition, fiscal year. Well, Tom, that's exactly right. And we've talked a little bit before about how there are alternative sources of funding. Some of the alternative sources are limited to specific capital intensive projects. Some of those funds will run out if they're not topped back up again. So you might have some money now, but in a couple of months, those funds may run dry unless Congress sets forth an appropriation that would indirectly cause those monies to be replenished. So I think that uh, you're looking at the government becoming more conservative over time. Uh, From a management standpoint, uh, this is not anything that a good government management group would want to see. And really putting good government management, not necessarily aside, but pairing it up with fiscal responsibility, you really would like to have an appropriation in place on time because that enables people to plan better. It enables people to operate the programs more efficiently. This is perhaps one of the least efficient ways to run a government. And you never really know if Congress might go ahead and say, you know, The situations, unfortunately, outside our borders right now are so dire that we're going to go ahead and pass a DOD and maybe a Homeland Security spending bill. They haven't really started talking about that yet. They've done it in the past. We'd have to see if they'll do it again now. But certainly the rest of the government, even under that scenario, would be sitting waiting until everybody got all their other issues resolved before they could turn back to spending. My guest is Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And in the meantime, procurement itself, when it does occur, is not getting any easier because of the seemingly endless pile-on of new regulations and requirements from the White House. Tom, one of the reasons why this issue really caught my attention is an executive order that came out from the White House recently 
maybe a directive, I think, rather, where they instructed the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is the agency inside the Office of Management and Budget that oversees the rulemaking process. They instructed OIRA to look at new rules in a way that would promote competition. And they did that without any apparent sense of irony, Tom. I think anyone who's tracked the regulatory agenda of this administration, particularly as it pertains to government procurement, had to get a little bit of a chuckle out of that directive. Because while on the one hand, they're telling people, well, we really want to promote competition. On the other, they're loading people up there to cybersecurity-related rules that are currently out for comment right now, Tom. There are a number of greenhouse gas and socioeconomic rules that are either out or are coming soon, and that just adds overall to the regulatory burden of government contractors. And if you add to that regulatory burden, you're going to be discouraging competition. Fewer and fewer companies will decide that they can participate in the government market if the regulatory burden continues to get higher. And what you're left with are companies that do this for a living, the tried and true, established, entrenched government contractors. There's nothing wrong with that. These are all competent companies who really know what they're doing. But if you're looking for enhanced competition, if you're looking to try to encourage new market entries who have innovative solutions and enhanced competition, the administration really has to get back on one side of the page because right now they're on both. If it's formal rulemaking, then there is a chance to comment back. And it sounds like you're urging people, if there is any time in any of these proposed rules, to comment back. But some of them are not formal rulemaking. They're just policy types of questions. But even then, I think you can still push back a little bit. Tom, I really do believe that industry has an obligation to do just that. If you see procedures and policies that are coming down the road that are going to increase speed bumps and barriers to doing business, speak up. Absolutely, contractors should definitely comment on the rulemaking process. No contractor should think that submitting comments on a proposed or interim rule is going to have a negative impact on their business. The regulatory people simply don't talk to the business development people. They may be in the same government, but that's a little bit like saying that the Washington commanders are in the same league with the Philadelphia Eagles. They're both football teams, but they play on different levels. So too it is with reg writers and people in government uh, business, Tom. So go ahead and comment on those rules. Make sure that your voice is being heard. And if you see uh, something that's a new policy or hear that uh, somebody's going to be doing something that could have a negative impact on your business, never assume that the government knows that it would have a negative impact. You know, government people have their own set of priorities and they look at things very differently from the private sector. And I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that one is better than the other. They both absolutely have their roles, Tom. But I think sometimes we lose track, whether we're on the government or industry side, that the people who we're sitting across the table from may have a very different point of view from our own. And it's important to keep that in mind so that we don't end up talking past each other. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Defense Department's journey to zero trust took an important step yesterday with the expected delivery of 43 plans of actions from the services and DOD agencies. These roadmaps spell out the steps each of these components will take to achieve the target environment by 2027. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me now to discuss how the DOD's Chief Information Officer's Office is going to use these plans to keep the rest of DOD on track. Jason, what are the plans all about in the first place? Tom, if you remember, DOD released their Zero Trust Strategy and Implementation Plan last November. This strategy, just as a quick reminder, lays out four strategic goals, zero trust culture adoption, DOD information systems secured and defended, technology acceleration, and DOD and and zero trust enablement. There's 45 separate quote-unquote capabilities around seven pillars, devices, networks and environments, applications and workloads, data, visibility and analytics, and automation and orchestration. So over the last year, the military services and defense agencies have, have been reviewing and analyzing their current cyber capabilities and what gaps exist. And these plans are really the roadmap to close those gaps. Randy Resnick is the director of the Zero Trust Architecture Program Management Office in DOD's CIO's office. He says his office wanted to make sure they were reviewing and rating everyone fairly through the same set of metrics. So Resnick says the CIO's office created metrics between February and July of this year. So that led into basically coming up with a table of contents a very prescriptive table of contents that we wanted to see in this plan, literally chapter by chapter and section by section, and then uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of appendices, as many as 10, with Excel spreadsheets that were already pre-populated with exactly what we wanted them to insert by the X and Y uh, axes. So there's no ambiguity of exactly what the uh, portfolio office wants to get Uh, And then on top of that, uh, we held monthlies uh, with the components. We held quarterlies with the components. And we also held one-on-ones off schedule with the components on anybody that had any questions about how to prepare the implementation plan. So suffice to say, everybody is in lockstep right now. Resnick says right now they're expecting the plans to really come in and say, okay, are they about 80 to 90% good? They they figure that there'll be some push and pull there. Not everyone's going to be perfect. So over the next week or two, they'll go back and say, hey, we need this data or, hey, we need this information or, hey, we need this. And then they'll be broken down by infrastructures and whether on-premise, hybrid, or cloud. Without getting too deep, it's uh, improve on the ground, our course of action one, our commercial clouds, course of action two, or a private cloud course of action three. And it'll be a mix of all that. So we're gonna get all this data. We're gonna be really busy, uh, heads down, but at the end of the year, let's say mid-December, we'll have a really good picture of exactly where the department sits on that. Again, Randy Resnick from the DoD uh, Zero Trust Program Management Office. Now this is going to fall your reporting to the DoD CIO's office. And how will that particular operation use these to make sure that everybody else is held accountable? The accountability definitely will come from the DoD CIO's office as well as from Congress. And, Tom, we can't forget the agency or DoD component-specific CIOs. Now, the requirement actually for this zero-trust implementation plan for each of the services and DoD agencies actually came from the 2023 Defense Authorization Bill. And Resnick says DoD will take on this oversight lead initially. Our plan that we've assembled, probably the equivalent of maybe uh, 17 or 18 FTE, you know, uh, full-time people, probably 25 people if you count them, uh, to spend the next 40 40- Six weeks, probably six weeks, analyzing every one of those plans and measuring the success of those plans on whether or not they're giving us the information so that we know every single component is going to be hitting target level zero trust or higher 
by uh, fiscal 27 or earlier. Now, after that initial review, Randy Resnick says DOD will send the report to Congress in December and brief lawmakers in January. Now, that's where that second layer of oversight will happen, assuming House and Senate Armed Services Committee members, they hold some hearings, they ask further questions after this initial meeting. But because they asked for it in the defense authorization bill, there's a, the assumption that they will continue to, to hold folks accountable. So I think it's the two two prong. DOD CIO and assorted CIO offices, and then Congress. Now, besides these plans of action, DOD wants to help services and agencies through what they call the Thunderdome Initiative. Remind us what that is, what the latest line of effort there under Thunderdome is. It's not something where you have a roller derby, right? This is not the Tina Turner and, and Mad Max movie. I have to make that joke every time you say Thunderdome. You know that, Tom. Yes. This is the Defense Information Systems Agency. They kicked off the Zero Trust pilot with through an other transaction authority agreement in an OTA back in January of 2022. They moved it into a, an OTA product uh, production in, under a $1.9 billion production agreement in August of this year to Booz Allen Hamilton. And remember, Thunderdome is not a tool. It's really a set of capabilities that agencies and the DOD and services can use, like software-defined networking and secure, secure access service edge or SASE. Imran Umar is the vice president and cyber leader at Booz Allen Hamilton working on Thunderdome. He says by the end of November, about 65 percent of DISA and the fourth estate agencies will be transitioned to Thunderdome. Partnering with CDAO, we implemented a streaming analytics pipeline. And the idea here is we're collecting all the sensor data from endpoints and IDPs, et cetera. And in line, we're enriching that data. We're normalizing that data. And we are deploying machine learning models on that streaming analytics pipeline. And what the value of that is as the data hits the wire, we are applying intelligence to that data. And by the time that data hits the same, the analyst already has all the data they need to take actions. We built two very specific uh, machine learning models that are currently deployed. One uh, domain generation algorithm, DGA. So these are, you know, DGA are a very common threat vector. They're generated through DNS-based attacks. So what we have done is we're using DGA models to do pattern analysis. We're identifying what are malicious URLs so that's been very effective. It gives us the probability score of the probability of how malicious this URL is. The second one we're building is called Sherlock. That goes after uh, HTTPS-based attacks. And, uh, you know, traditional signature-based models do not detect those threats. So there's Umar talking about AI and so forth within Thunderdome, but the agencies are using AI machine learning elsewhere when it has to do with zero trust? Absolutely. And you, as you said, Tom, you really just can't get away from it. It's everywhere you want to be. I think right now, a lot of the agencies, as they're looking at zero trust and what capabilities they currently have, they're saying, okay, how can we use some basics of AI and ML to really address mundane, data-heavy actions and, and that they have to take? And, and I'll give you a quick example. Renetta Spinks recently retired after spending the last two years as the deputy CEO of the Marine Corps. And she says the implementation of automation and AI tools is having a huge impact. She gave one example, for instance, Tom, where a cyber operator 16 to 17 hours a month to really what they call update your access. Are you who you said you are? Are you being as Tom Temin, Tom Temin, and, and how often do you have to do that? And she says through the use of automation tools and AI and ML tools, they've actually cut that way down and really given them back to really focus on important aspects of cybersecurity, which is the analysis, understanding where the anomalies are, and of course, uh, ensuring that they're protecting data and networks. So I think that that's an easy one. Uh, I think the other piece is around, uh, obviously, understanding data. As you heard Umar talk about, there's a lot of data coming in, too much for any one person to look at. I think 
think uh, the Marine Corps is another one, and, and so our, our energy department would be a third who they're starting to really lean on these tools. Yeah, so over time, this really all does come together. Zero trust, AI, and actual improvement in the way government works. They certainly hope so. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.